the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hello and welcome to this Farm Advisory Service podcast. Uh, my name is Malcolm McDonald and I am joined here on the line by Charlie and Andrea Walker from Barnside Farm. How are you both today? Yeah, good, thank you. Yeah, very good, thank you. How's the weather with you? Uh, pretty average, but there's not too much falling out of the sky. And uh, it's nice to have an excuse to come inside early, actually. <laughs> I thought it was quite nice, good. actually. Oh. <laughs> um, we're doing this podcast for the Northeast Organic Discussion Group. It's kind of off the back of, in conjunction with the, the virtual farm tour we had a couple of weeks ago, which was I thought was uh, very successful and great. Um, very informative presentation from yourselves and, uh, and great questions all the way through, so it worked well. For some people who maybe weren't on the webinar didn't see it, do you want to just start off by kind of describing the farm and describing when you kind of came onto the farm, what's your a basic overview of your farming system? Sure, yeah, yeah. So we, we, we came here, well, we're in, the, um, we're in the Scottish borders about 30 miles southeast of Edinburgh uh, in the Lammermuir Hills. Um, we're on um, 625 acres in total, of which about two thirds is improved pasture, and uh, it's very stony soil. 30-inch rainfall runs from 600 up to 900 feet, and we run uh, 111 suckler cows and 520 ewes. And we came here in 2001. Um, uh, we took the farm on. It was. Uh, pretty run down when we took it on we went organic in 2004 and uh, since then we've been trying to farm in quite a progressive and environmentally friendly way i suppose yeah yeah good stuff good stuff so you say you took on the farm in 2001 and then it was 2004 before you became organic or went organic did you, was that always the plan to, to become organic or, or did something kind of spur that off to move into organics? What was your thinking there? Um, in truth, it was not in the plan originally, no. It was, uh, it was something that when we were at college, which was the early 90s, um, organic farming was, um, well, it was probably considered a bit wacky, if we're honest. And, but I did do the, uh, we did do the module about organic farming, and it was quite interesting. Um, but it was really, it, it, we came into the farm in 2001, and obviously we're quite um, capital starved, as it were, coming into the business. <laughs> we had a trip for a friend's wedding, actually, to New Zealand in 2003, beginning of 2003. And off the back of that, we decided that from the position we were at, we either needed to intensify production significantly, use, use more fertilizer, we weren't using much at the time, increase the stock numbers, and really push the system a lot harder, or the alternative was to go organic. And we won't lie, there was, you know, attractive incentives to go organic at the time with the uh, conversion payments. And to a, a young business looking to do things, you know, we were always looking at doing different things in a different way. Um, it was very attractive to go organic. Um, and financially, we were borrowed as much as we possibly could be and actually intensifying was going to be very difficult because we, we were struggling to fund the extra livestock that we would have needed. 
And um, as Charlie was saying, you know, the incentives for organics at that point were were very good, and it took our fledgling business and made us safe. I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah I think you know we, there was a feeling that we'd have had to have made made a fair hash of going organic um, to have ended up worse off um, at the end of that period. Um, so it was, you know, so the, there's no doubt there was, you know, it was a financial incentive, um, e- even though the the ethical part was was growing on us, as it were. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I suppose the alternative going intensive, like you say, it would have been a, a riskier move and a much more uh, capital intensive move. And, and the more intensive you go, the more you put it into it, you have to get a lot back out to make it work. So, um, so mm-hmm. the organic for you would have been a... a, a yeah, a safer, a more sensible business route to play the sound of things. And yeah. at that time, so Tom was born in 2001, Jessica was born in 2004. So at that time, we were obviously pretty stretched because Charlie was was on the farm a lot more on his own because I was obviously um, pretty much stuck with a, a toddler and a baby. Um, so it, it was a time, it, it couldn't have come at a better time, really, um, the thought that we were not going to have to be quite as intensive and we could actually use our brains a bit more um to think around all of the all of the associated problems with being organic um and so it it made a lot of sense on on that level as well Mm. yeah i think that that was a real attraction wasn't it to be using using the head more than the hands perhaps Mm -hmm. um as andrew says and you know do less stock better perhaps rather than not better that sounds critical of somebody that might be more intensive and i don't mean to be so but um to do try and get a bit more out of less stock rather than pushing numbers yeah and and to try and get a premium on the stock you're producing too if you are going to have less numbers try to maximize the value of that as well so yeah that, that makes sense so so after that kind of that kind of start things, I mean, have you looked back on the organics at all? Would you, do you think you'd ever you go conventional now? Does it cross your mind? Can't really see that happening. Um, we did we did a big we did a farm review um, to twenty seventeen, I think it was, and looked yeah. back at a lot of things. And you know, we, we we like to think that we keep questioning ourselves on everything that we do, um, but we that that year in particular um, it came under being organic came under a lot of scrutiny uh, not because we were doubting it but just because we decided let's look at everything root and branch and and we decided you know yeah sure one or two minor issues with certain things but no um organic was the way uh, we were doing things and you know and i used to say that like i was alluding to that we went into organic you know probably more than 50 percent for financial reasons um and less than 50 percent for ethical reasons but the more we did it the more that became an ethical choice as well as a financial choice. It's got to st- still stack up financially, um, but it is also an ethical mm-hmm. thing as well. I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is there any kind of aspects of the organics which you find a real a real headache when you're when you're working? <laughs> I think I think the thing. Well, thinking about it in terms of what would we do different if we weren't organic, I. I wonder if the one thing that I've always found really challenging, and maybe it's just my management, is is growing a, a forage crop that justifies plowing up uh, some grassland to grow it. Um, because our forage crops have been notoriously disappointing, and the odd one that's been 
quite good seems to have been eaten by something other than our livestock before <laughs> our livestock get to it. Um, so possibly, yes, you, you know, maximizing uh, the use of that bit of land that, that would grow a forage crop. But having said that, we've sort of found other ways of working around that. So, but that would be the biggest one that would be a difference if we were conventional. Um, aside from that, no, not really. There's, there's one or two things that sometimes appear to be uh, a bit odd, but you know, you've got to have a set of rules and if you don't, um, that it loses all credibility. So fair enough. And it, for us, it, it's the fact we've learned how to, how to think in a different way and work around all of the rules to make sure that the system fits within the rules as well. Um, it, it's, it's yeah. a whole farm. Yeah, yeah. It's maybe a bad choice of phrase to say work around the rules, but I know what you mean. <laughs> work with the rules, but yeah, I know what you mean. No, but suit your system to the rules you've got. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. that's much yeah. nicer way yeah. of putting it. Well, Thank you. Yeah, I think, I think one of the big yeah. things for us, and, and something that we've always been at pains to stress to anybody coming on farm or that we're talking to about how we farm is that is that really, in a sense, we almost throw the conventional book of farming away and and grab the you know look for a, a different a different book and as Andrea says a different mindset because we, we probably started out trying to replace you know way back in 2004 or whatever it was um, replace conventional methods and products with something that's organic. Let's do the same thing, but let's find an organic uh, thing that does that. And that that's not the right approach. We we know that now. Um, it's about a total mindset change and uh, planning things very differently and, and avoiding a lot of those challenges, you know, particularly animal health challenges that might come. You can't always avoid them, but you can mitigate them um, by prior planning and good management. Um, so, yeah, it was that, that whole aspect of things changing the mindset. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you can't just take your normal conventional farming practices and then just swap out for organics you are going to have to change your whole kind of farming method to make it suit at times yes, yes. yeah yeah i think i think that's fair. I, I certainly think so if you're going to be in it for the long haul and you know really really get a hold of it and do it um with any real um i don't know for the long for the long haul which i've already said but yeah to really um to, to really buy into it that's where you've got to be at um it's not a there's not a sort of substitute product for this and, and method for that. It's like, no, let's think about the whole thing in a, in a bit of a different way. And, uh, you know, and, and all the things that join up different things, they're not all looked at in isolation. That's one of the things that frustrates me often with certain aspects of um, conventional systems is that too often we're looking at things in isolation and not what the knock-on effects are. Yeah, no, no, I see that. I think when a conventional system, because you've got that whole kind of, you know, full toolkit of pesticides and, and fertilizers and medicines too, you, you just, you don't have to maybe think in such a comprehensive way. Um, I've heard you talk about rotational grazing uh, a, fa a fair bit before. Do you want to touch a little on that? I mean, because I think it's quite kind of fundamental to your whole farming system too and, and you know, driving production that way do you want to do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're doing previously before you started getting into rotational grazing and just tell us how it's worked for you yeah sure yeah so i mean going back to those early days here um we were pretty much a set stock system um then we on occasion had a kind of ad hoc rotation that might have been 
a particular group moving around three fields, you know, a week in each field or a bit longer than that even. So very, you know, very haphazard, not particularly a system. Um, but we're getting okay results, but we weren't particularly heavy stocked at that point. Um, time moved forward. Um, we thought we were doing rather well. And then two or three years that challenged us, particularly 2012 and 13, um, which were a couple of, you know, one was a very, well, I think both quite late springs and one was very wet year. Um, and one was particularly cold very late on. 2012 and 13 were, were, were pretty challenging for us and made us really question um, what we were doing with the business and how we could get more out of it. Um, and, in a, you know, we, we met with the accountant, as we do it every year and, and what have you, but also looked, went back and looked at the figures and what have you. And the long and the short of it was we needed more output um, from what we'd got. The, the variable costs were pretty well under control, but fixed costs just weren't being spread over enough units of output. Um, and so it, it was probably the stars probably aligned at that time because, or perhaps my, my mind just opened up a bit more, but we, um, we'd been to uh, certain meetings where paddock grazing, rotational grazing was being talked about um, and uh, got quite excited about what that potential might offer, even if it was as half as good as the people that were advocating it said it was going to give us quite a lift. So we dived in with um, both feet uh, in 2014. And when I say that, I make it sound very sudden, but the truth was we had a little bit of a play with it in 2009 uh, when we had some New Zealanders working for us and uh, they were keen to give it a go. We gave it a go. Water system wasn't up to it. My mindset wasn't up to it. And um, we stopped doing it after they left. Um, so it was really that 2014 we were like, right, now we're going to make this work. We're not going to see if this works. We're going to make this work and dived in, put a lot of infrastructure in with extra water troughs, bought a lot of temporary electric fencing and subdivided the whole farm. So everything's in seven acre paddocks, six, between six and eight acre paddocks. And we rotate around those almost the entire year other than lambing and calving. Yeah, Charlie's never one to actually not jump in with both feet. He, he, likes, to, he likes to really, really give things okay. a go. So we did we did so investment wise it, it was huge um but that's because charlie likes to do that we could have done it a lot more steadily um and sort of obviously uh the benefits are a little bit watered down but any start is a good start you don't have to just buy mm. in goodness knows how many water troughs and <laughs> kilometers well, worth of fencing yeah yeah. yeah. Well, we went for it in a big way, but yeah, you don't have to. As Andrew said, it was. Uh, but but the thing is, it, 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 I make it sound like it's like, oh, this might be a good idea. Let's just do it full of ticker. But it was well researched. We'd we'd been and met with the right people, seen some people that were doing it. Uh, I back in two thousand and nine, yeah. before we tried it, I'd been telling other people we should all be doing it. Uh, then when it was me actually yeah. winding up the reels and dragging um, rubbishy old water troughs across fields. I, I decided we couldn't do it, mm. <laughs> um, and that was what I told people. <laughs> years. And then we, 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 but a couple of challenging years just concentrated the mind and made us open up. But Zandria says, you know, the, the thing that really kicked me over the line with that 2013 was listening to it was New Zealand and Murray Roloff, and he said, if all you do is go home from this meeting, and you put two groups of stock into one group and just rock them between the two fields that they've had for the rest of the summer you have taken a big step forward because you'll see what grass grows when there's no stock in the field and you'll be giving that grass a bit of a rest, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And that's, those were the things that were really helped to convince us to, 
to dive in with both feet. And obviously, it was quite a steep learning curve as well, but that was that was all good, and it was a lot of fun, and it was immediately better as well, which was very gratifying. Yeah. I mean, just to say in your defence about a lot of investment, I mean, I have, a, I have a fair idea that you, I'm sure you spent a lot of money on, on fencing and water trucks, but if you compare that to, say, building sheds or buying new tractors and things like that, it probably, because farmers are used to spending large sums of money on, on those things, they may be... I, I doubt your amount of fencing or or amount of fencing would have went far in a new tractor or a, or a brand new big shed. Yeah. So it probably, and there's probably a more immediate return on it because once you put that fencing in place, you probably immediately started increasing stocking rates, which isn't always true with, you know, uh, other kind of fixed costs like fen- yeah. uh, uh, tractors or sheds. So, um, yeah. yeah. Do you think just when you're saying that you kind of sickened yourself off at a wee bit of dragging old water trucks about the fields, do you think there's a danger of people getting quite excited about meetings and then uh, about, uh, about rotational grazing at meetings, then they go home and try it and don't put enough into the infrastructure and get fed up of it as well? Uh, well, that describes me perfectly from 2009. Yes, I do. I do. I think yeah. one of the big, really big differences between 2014, let's say, when we started it and 2009 was that there were a lot more other people doing it um, and if you like speaking the same language even people that were doing it but there were lots of other people interested in it and QMS got some groups together and, and going on it so we all were learning together uh, and that was hugely beneficial whereas 2009 we were leaning heavily on our Kiwi friends as they became um, and when they went uh, a little bit of the a bit of the mouse went with it and it was all very new still uh, and we hadn't um, got the gear to do it either. That's what we realise now. You know, We didn't have to spend a fortune. If we just put a little bit of effort in um, back then, we'd probably have got into it over over the next three or four years, as Andrea was saying, in a more gradual, uh, rational and reasoned way. But um, but actually, in a sense, in, by 2013, 14, there's that, that feeling of want to catch up. I, I'm pretty convinced this is where we need to be. And um, golly gosh, yes, it has been uh, proved itself times over yeah and actually as you pointed out it is a quick return on capital um the rewards we got far outweighed any capital expenditure very very quickly yeah yeah i mean we we were you were translating it into machinery purchase and sheds and that sort of thing one of the one of the things i've the graphics i've used before is a um about four tons of concentrate feed and then uh, the next image is one of how much water pipe you can buy for four tons of concentrate feed, but you'll have the water pipe for 25 years. And likewise with troughs and with fencing. You, you know, I think it was, I think our investment was around about £30 an acre. Um, so okay. to, to do about 500 acres um, was, I've got to get the maths right here, it was about 15K. Was that right? Yeah. yeah. And that sounds an awful lot, but as you say, you put that up against your concentrate bill or your. Um, yeah. Or a tractor, or a shed. I mean, nothing. I mean, partic- particularly your your kind of high input, high high output kind of conventional systems. That could be that could be one application of fertilizer almost. I mean, so it, yeah. I mean that's a, quite an acreage you're covered with that too. So it's, yeah. it doesn't actually sound like that much to me on on that scale. But when people maybe think about oh fence or electric fencing, I think oh 15k in electric fencing, they maybe do um maybe do kind of. It sounds like a lot when it's yeah. it's not that much in the in the grand scheme of the business. No. And like you say, you'd spend that on concentrates and the and the drop for hat quite often too. Like yeah. if you were, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, the irony for us was that with that 
we bought enough troughs and enough fences that it meant that we actually were rarely moving any of the above. You know, they were we put the troughs in, in a, on a semi-permanent basis, and you know, so we're not moving troughs about as a rule, um, or even very rarely. And fences are all they're all able to be uh, rolled up, um, but a lot of them are, are up for the year. Um, and the rest are up for the season. Yeah. You know, it's not we're not it's not onerously moving lots and lots of fencing on a daily basis at all. No, the only yeah. fences that we sort of move regularly are the sort of temporary temporary fences that we put up to make the paddocks smaller if we're if we're facing uh, extra growth or want to just put more grazing pressure on, and that's mostly for the cattle, isn't it? And just mm. throwing up one one wire just to hold them at one end of a field for however long we need to. So it's pretty yeah. straightforward. Mm. It is. Okay. okay. And so do you, to get power to all these, to each field, are you running kind of, you know, a, a permanent electric fence around the field to take power to them or are you moving units or how do you sort that side of it? Yeah. Mains, mains unit, which I would consider, key if you're in a situation where you can have a mains unit and it's not too many separate blocks of land and we are lucky like that here um we'd had a mains unit in for a long time actually and scare wires it, it quickly threw up a lot of scare wires on the walls and fences around the farm because as andrea was pointing out when we came here there wasn't an awful lot to keep stock in any of the enclosures that were here so uh, some electric scare wires with cheapest chips really um, to get that around the farm and that's been fantastic for obviously adding the, the temporary infrastructure in onto that is brilliant no, no that's that's no, very true and even, even if you're not subdividing fields you know a, a scare fence around or, or a, an electric wire on the top of your normal fences is a is quite a good idea to stop cattle leaning over leaning over the fence and, and ruining them anyway so yeah. some people might already have that and they could just run their their dividing fences off that quite quite easily but um, yeah, I think if you're handling a lot of batteries and shifting units, it could get tedious quite quickly too, which yeah. again will sicken you off the system, you know. So yeah, agreed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, you also mentioned the webinar a bit about mob grazing. What you mob grazing you've started doing? Um, is that with the cattle or is it sheep as well? It's so far. It's just been with the cattle. Uh, certainly, as a rule, anyway. Um, and it's just been really the last couple of years that we've got into actually doing that is something that I've been reading about and watching YouTube videos about for a few years. Um, and I guess, again, it was the drought of 2018 really concentrated the mind um, because it made us think that we weren't doing it that year, but we were in that place where we thought, gosh, if we were mob grazing, we would actually be, I think we would be quite a bit more resilient to this drought. Um, and so again, you know, a time of adversity uh, perhaps challenged the mind a bit more to uh, to try something new. And we were we were looking around desperately, trying to find other people that were doing it, and perhaps could put some figures on it for us as to how effective it had been for them. But there, there were people doing it, but not an awful lot of um, numbers coming out of things. And we we just reached that point where we're like, well, let's just let's do it ourselves and see how it goes for us. And it's been very good, but it has only been with the cattle um, for the last couple of years. The sheep, their half of the farm each year has been grazed on a, if you like, a short grass or, you know, a three-leaf um, system. Um, yeah. We haven't ventured there with the sheep yet. 
Um, okay. Okay. So just to be just to be kind of clear, I mean, my understanding of log grazing is where you let the grass go quite quite long. Maybe in some some of the examples I've seen, like heading for a crop of silage almost, and then you put the cows on to and leave them to munch munch down uh, quite a lot of it, but also leave some which is then trampled back in. So in some respects, it's a bit different from where our kind of traditional rotational grazing is that a fair summary is that what you're what you're doing yeah i, th I think so i think i mean i think the key thing is that the the grazing period is very short so for us that's generally been two days sometimes just one day um but yeah. it's not a case of uh, they can't be in there too long uh, otherwise you don't get a very even kind of effect of manuring and trampling and eating but yeah they, it's definitely about they're going into something that looks like, um, as you say, yeah, silage, <laughs> silage field. And they go in and it looks like when your cows used to get out in the silage field. Obviously, that never happened to us. Um, yeah, they go in and it gives you, yeah, it gives you the yips at first. It feels a bit odd. It's very different to what we were used to previously. Um, but what gives you real heart is when you see it a week later, you can see where this trampled stuff was. You can, you know, in the height of the growing season, you can see the green shoots coming up through that. And two weeks later, it's really starting to boom. And uh, you're thinking, yeah, I've got all that. I've got that ground cover that's stimulating the soil biology. It's protecting the soil from, from drought. It's also slowing the ingress of water if it's a particularly wet time and that sort of thing, increasing the organic matter. There's so many potential benefits. Um, but they are quite hard things to measure um, alongside the animal performance. And uh, I think that's one of the issues with it slightly is that they haven't been able to be too many this hard and fast measurements of this is what can be achieved by doing this um, but certainly we're happy with our cattle growth rates they're similar to what they were before um, grazing the same area but just grazing it in a very different way and building up a much longer cover at the beginning of the season and to sort of try and help with the fact that we can't quantify it specifically we're actually in a mob grazing group aren't we hmm. and between us all is a lot of completely different farms but uh, between us all, we're, we're trying to put parameters on it, trying to find a way where we can quantify it um, so that we can help other people to, to see the benefits of it. Um, and it's, it's not proving straightforward. It's not proving easy. But we're all seeing um, a, a lot of positive outcomes from it. Mm. Yeah. We just want some metrics to back up those that anecdotal stuff. Mm. Yeah, yeah. When you say positive outcomes, I mean, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine that growth rates would be better in mob grazing because it's quite the conventional wisdom is that you know, reasonably short but just lots of nice lush high energy grass is, is what you need to really get the most out of the stock. And it's certain, it certainly seems like it can't be that. But are you just happy that growth rates are maintained at a good level, or I or what? Yeah, absolutely, I, I think they potentially could be better. Um, I, I'm being a little bit risque, perhaps saying they could be better, but uh, I've just been chatting in a different meeting this afternoon, actually, about, um, you know, fibre in the diet and dry matters of, of pasture, particularly at this time of year. And I think there's, there's some scope there, but I, I wouldn't make brass claims for it to be better. If it's as good um, in terms of animal performance, then that's good because we're getting all of those other benefits as well. Even if it's not quite as good, there's all those other benefits um so I, I think that's fine. But I think the big thing with it is that a lot of people get hung up on is they look at the material that is on offer as a whole and look at it and go, well, some of that's gone to seed and some of that's stuff that we wouldn't normally see. Uh, that must be, as an average, if you 
cut that and weighed it and analyzed it, it probably would be of lower energy and protein um, than the, the, the short lush stuff that we're used to. But the animals go in and they are choosing the best 50% or even just the best 30% of what is there. So they, they're actually choosing a diet that will be significantly higher in ME um, than, uh, than they would be if they were having to harvest all the material. And they're choosing what they want to eat, what their body feels that they would like to eat. So they're choosing the right diet for them at that point. Mm. So it, particularly in the autumn, we've seen, we've seen very much more content cattle because often in the autumn we find our mm. cattle are sort of quite unsettled on the shorter leafed mm. um, model. Um, whereas they definitely seem to be a lot happier on the taller grass. Mm. Yeah, I suppose in the autumn, we're in the shorter leaf model, as you'd say, kind of sometimes feel like the cattle are looking for looking for a move more often when they're not really due one. Yes. Is that maybe they're just a bit, a bit sick of having short, leafy, wet grass in front of them because it's not maybe filling them up in the same way that uh, a lengthier kind of drier summer grazing is? I'm just speculating. We definitely yeah. find that it's not yeah. passing through them quite as quickly, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. That yeah. The fiber's yeah. obviously holding it within them yeah. longer. Yeah. And the process uh, product yeah. seems to land immediately behind them, not six, seven, eight feet behind them. <laughs> if you get what I mean. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, no. Fair enough. Yeah, no, that's something I never can uh, considered before, and and you're right too. The selection, although cows are maybe non-selective grazers up to a point, but if they've got plenty in front of them, yeah, they will pick out their best. I mean, a colleague of mine is telling me that um, when you analyse silage, say you give silage to yows and um, leave them, allow them, you know, thirty or forty percent wastage, they'll actually select a far higher quality uh, ration than you can analyse your silage and think, oh, this is no good, this won't do them at all yeah. but they'll actually do great in it because they're picking out the best stuff and leaving the rest as long as you tidy up the wastage and yeah force them to eat it of course yeah so yeah, um, that's, that's yeah something we, same kind of principle we do that actually with uh well particularly with our cattle young stock but use if if we need to put them on silage in the winter you know we do not push them to to clear up for exactly that reason and i almost do a leader follower with silage in the sense that we we cut the the stuff the user rejected, not because it's rotten, but we cut it off to the to the cows, the dry soaker cows, and they get to tidy that up. Um, and you said you said you're in a, a mob grazing group, but you know, like the rotational grazing, have you found the group setup to be helpful in kind of getting into it as well? Yeah, it's it, it's brilliant. Um, what was it was something um, going back to the the original grazing group that. To Mike Blanche and Emily Grant ran for QMS and Mike said something right at the beginning um, and uh, I was on about, oh, you know, I wanted to go fast, I wanted to push on and, uh, you know, maybe fly solo a little bit and he said, he said, what did he say, Charlie, if you want to go fast, go alone, if you want to go far, go together. Uh, <laughs> and I know it's a bit of a cheesy one but it's, it's so true because there's no way you yeah. could learn as quickly as being in a group with 14, 15 other people that are more than happy to share what's going right for them, but more importantly, perhaps what's not going right for them. Um, and to have that in a, yeah. in a WhatsApp group or a, some kind of forum is is really good as well because it means you're getting the ongoing stuff in between meetings uh, and you're all chipping away. Has anybody tried this or I'm doing that? Or here's a photo of my residual. What do you think? Am I leaving enough? Or 
and that that is hugely multiplies how quickly you move things on yeah yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes just knowing that something can be done, and yes, I mean, we hear about it from New Zealand, but somebody, just a neighbour, knowing that they're doing rotational grazing, sometimes that's that's enough to think, yeah, I should be doing that too. If they can do it, like, why can't yeah. I? So, yeah, I think often we've got we've got the competence, but we don't necessarily know that. And if we haven't got the confidence to go with that, um, then you, you're probably not going to do it. But actually, if you can generate that bit of confidence because somebody else is doing it or you're going to somebody else's farm who's doing it, you can see it and away you go. You can just give it a try and then you climb into it um, at whatever pace yeah. suits you. Yeah. yeah. Just on the of what can be kind of daunting aspect of, of rotational grazing with the uh, do you do you measure grass with like plate meters and, and things like that? Are you into it in a kind of a, almost a dairy style where you're kind of you know really trying to keep on top of it and record it, or are you just going by a kind of by eye or by kind of welly boot height as, as some people talk about too? Um, some and some, if I'm honest, we I, I aspire to measure grass a lot more often than um, I actually measure it, or I actually persuade somebody else to measure it for us, uh, <laughs> son or whoever. But yeah. um, not me, we, definitely not me. We did buy uh, I pasture sticks for a long time. I, I really like numbers, and I found that was a huge crutch for me when I was first starting it. But that's that's the way my head works. I wanted to work the numbers, you know, what what dry matter do they need? How much dry matter are we growing? How much dry matter is this? What does that look like? It was a bit of a new language. Uh, and in a sense, yeah, a bit daunting. But actually, um, I, I realized that it's it's probably just the way that I work and I like being able to put set numbers on it. So I, we actually bought a plate meter a few years ago. Um, and the brilliant thing about buying a plate meter that cost, I think it cost 450 quid was that I immediately started to measure the grass a lot more than I was doing with the completely free sword stick. The reason I did that was because I'd spent the money on it. Andrea made me go and measure the grass. Um, but it, it, in truth, it, it was also logistically, it was a lot easier because you're getting, you know, very easy to get 20, 30 readings from each paddock. Um, and it was press a button and it's in, the, it's in the plate meter. And when I bring the plate meter back to the office, blip, just plug it into the computer and it uploads. So that was, that was great. And that works for us in the way that my head works. But equally, I know of farmers who do as good, if not a better job, and they do it more. They've probably measured some grass, but they're using their intuition quite a bit more in their eye. So, that, that, you know, it, it's just what suits you. And I think it was one of the things I got a bit hung up on and was frightened of. But what I do find is if I haven't measured for more than for a gap of more than about three weeks, I do get a bit twitchy. I like to know where we're at and particularly say this time of year, yeah, yeah. we kind of read ahead. Can we keep the ewes grazing right through the winter? Or or more importantly, at what point do we need to start feeding cows if we're going to try and keep ewes grazing all through the winter? You know, that sort of decision. So just yeah. now it would be a key yeah. point to measure. But So in truth, it's probably averages a little bit more than once a month through the year. Do try and get a bit more often at the peak of the growing season in May and June. Um, but this time of year, you know, I measure we'll measure soon now, but then it might not be again until Christmas, early in the new year, um, and then one more before we hit the growing season. But the other thing you ought to add is that it's actually really difficult to use the plate meter on the tall grass grazing area, yeah, um, because it's too tall. It's really quite difficult to walk through it at times, <laughs> but um, but yeah, it it gets 
less accurate at those high levels. Um, I still measure it because I still figure that, that it is a yardstick, but it perhaps isn't quite as true a, a yardstick as when we were you know, on the, on the shorter model that we're doing for the sheep. Um, so there, there needs to be a little bit more of the eye coming into it there. And as you can say, when it's longer stuff, it's going to be slightly less important because they are wasting a certain amount and you're just going to, you know, in, when, with the shorter model, you know, most of it's been eaten. So it's kind of more yeah. important maybe. But, uh, yeah, definitely. I think that, that's dead right. Yeah, you've got a little bit more of a buffer in there in that sense um, with the, the longer model. Yeah. Um, also, that uh, that recent grant scheme, the Sustainable Agricultural Grant Scheme, um, uh, they actually had pasture meters in that. I don't think many people took up that uh, option, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it was there. Like, so yeah. if, if anybody had been thinking about it, there was a chance there. And there might be, since that was a pilot scheme, there might be similar ones coming forward. Like, so, I mean, yeah, you say if the plate meter costs about, you know, 400 or 450 pounds, if you get 60% on that, that makes it yeah a bit more attractive too yeah. but i think that ties in, ties into what you're saying about the infrastructure as well you've got to have the equipment to make it not easy but manageable to do things as well as well as you'd want to kind of maybe going to a halfway house you might end up with all of the all of the kind of not extra work we're trying to say yeah you, yeah. you i know what you you've mean got to, you've got to make it easy to do to make yeah. sure you do it yes yeah and i think that's it's so true it's you know, I, I started out and I probably had the, <laughs> when I got a bit, I got a bit obsessive with it, you know, and I was going to have more paddocks than anybody else. And we were going to move more often than anybody else. And at the end of the day, it's not about that. It's about finding what suits you. But, but as you've just pointed out so correctly is, is making it, if you make it easy to do, you do it. Um, whether it's measuring the grass, whether it's moving the stock and we've, you know, we're quite different in terms of the layout. Um, of some of the paddocks now to what they were the first couple of years that we did it because the first couple of years it was the, the ideal when I, when you're sitting in the farm office looking at the map and now it's the ideal for when you're out there and it's horizontal sleep and you're trying to get cattle to go around the end of a fence and what have you it's set up so that it's set up for the the, the stock now rather than the the, the OCD uh, m manager in the office if you know what I mean um, and that it just because it works better, you know, it's the day of the Highland show and you want to get the stock shifted. You don't want to spend, you know, half the day messing messing around with other things. And you have to build that into the system. And we need to occasionally leave the farm in the care of somebody else. So it has to be um it has to be sort of foolproof so that anybody can do it. Um, you know, we're very, very fortunate in that we have we have lovely people who come in and look after the farm but we also have with tenants we also have other people on the farm there's the shoots there's randoms you know and so they have to be able to to work around all of the electric as well so you do have yeah, to be yeah. careful when you're putting your infrastructure in as to who is going to be actually managing to look after it as well Okay, thanks, guys. That's been uh, very, very informative and uh, quite a kind of whistle stop tour of your, you know, reasons for going organic and your rotational and mob grazing. Um, and of course, when we want a bit more detail on that too, they can always go back to the webinar. But if we could just move finish off by, if you want to give us kind of two top tips that you you kind of give people who are maybe thinking about kind of either organic conversion or rotational grazing or mob grazing or, or any major changes in, in their farm business um, that you'd kind of you kind of top tips. In that regard, cool. Oh, how long have you got, Malcolm? Um, <laughs> Only two. <laughs> yeah. 
No, I think I think the uh, the biggest one uh, that's probably borne out in what we've just been chatting about is is getting being part of a group. Um, you know, and, and that might just be a group even just on social media, but in the first instance. Um, but it really, if you can be in a group and get out on farm, and I know that's not easy at the moment, but um, the power of learning is multiplied massively and you're all, you're all making mistakes together, you're learning together, you're sharing those experiences and it just accelerates everything that's going on. It gives you the confidence as well. So that, that would be a huge thing, you know, irrespective of whether that's going organic, mob grazing, rotational grazing or any other sort of business change. That's been huge and a big part of our journey um, in the last 20 years. Um, the other thing, I suppose, don't don't be scared of trying new things and don't be scared of, you know, making making big groups. We were scared of making big groups of stock so that the rotational system worked uh, more effectively. And actually... It's not that scary. Your stock know the system. They move really well. They respond really well to everything that that you're offering them. So don't be afraid of it. It's it's actually quite straightforward if if you put your yeah. big boy pants on. Yeah, yeah. It's not it's not that the stock aren't afraid of it. It's just us that are afraid of it. Yes. Um, but it is entirely manageable. And they actually really it. like being in the big groups. When yeah. we set stock at lambing time, our ewes are actually like, what on earth? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I think that's uh, that's really good. Um, thank you both for your time, uh, both for the webinar and for the podcast too. It's uh, yep, great to hear about your farming system and what changes you've made. And uh, thank, thank you again for your time. Well, 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 thank you. It's been really enjoyable to do, and it's only by going to other people's farms and listening to them chatting about their farms that we've learned what we have and got where we have so yeah and we would love it if when everything opens up again that uh, people could actually come back on farm and, and have a proper look 